We're in Romans 11, if you'd like to look with us. Uh, but maybe before we start in Romans, we'd like to maybe answer a question or two that I've had come up a couple different times and we've tried to answer and be a help, but maybe as a whole we could look at just a couple verses uh, in Romans chapter number 4, verse number 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So if we look on down, if you look in verse number 14, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, for where there's no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is a faith that it might be by grace, to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham. And again in chapter number 3 of Romans, verse number 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So you've got those verses. And in James chapter number 2, verse number 14. What do they profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Verse number 20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? So in Romans... Paul clearly is teaching that salvation is only by faith without works. And James here. Now, if what James is saying is salvation is not by faith alone, but if you haven't got works with your faith, then your faith is dead. Now, if that's the case, you've got an irreconcilable contradiction. Wouldn't you say that's true? For Paul to say that salvation is only by faith without works and James to say salvation is by faith and works together, then they are contradictory to one another. How are we going to know who's right? How are you going to decide who's right? But there is no contradiction in Scripture. Wouldn't you say that, that to be true? these scriptures must be able to come together and agree with one another. So what Paul is talking about in Romans is me being saved. Now how is somebody brought to Christ in salvation? They are in sin, true. They're dead to God. By the word, they've got no good works. There's none good. No, not one. And God, through the gospel and by the Spirit, quickens them, regenerates them, <coughs> awakens them, and brings them to Jesus. It's, it's God doing the work, the convicting, the drawing, the awakening, and God justifies them in Jesus before they testify and before they do any good work, 
before they do any uh, service to God, God justifies them in Jesus apart from works. So James here in James 2. James says, what does it profit if a man say he have faith and have not works? In Romans chapter 6, Paul clearly speaks of this salvation that changes the life of a man. Can we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Because once God has justified us in Jesus Christ, His grace makes new creatures out of us. He changes our mind. We no longer have the fallen, corrupt heart that we had before, but now we have the mind of Christ through the indwelling of the Spirit. And our life is inevitably changed by the work of God in our heart. Now, that change is not me actively saving myself by what I'm doing. No, I was saved by grace through faith and that alone. No works whatsoever. But because I've been saved and God has justified me and His Spirit is living in me, my life, it can't help but be changed after that work. So James is not speaking of I'm working to be justified, but James is saying you can tell me you have faith all day long, but if your life is not changed, if God has not made a new creature out of you, then you've not got faith. What you've got's dead. So they're not... They're not contradicting the danger you run into. And could you not just look at James chapter 2 by itself? And you, you could teach out of that Scripture and out of those verses by themselves on their own, you could teach that you have to work to be saved and if you don't work, you're not saved. But that is in disagreement with the rest of the Scripture. You've got to take the Bible as a whole. There is no disagreement between Romans and between James. But you're looking at two different things here. The apostles are addressing two different problems. And so those that are saved have a regenerated and changed life that lives now for God not to be saved, but because they are saved. And those that are not regenerated and their lives are not changed, then they can say they have faith all day long. What they have is not biblical saving faith because God's not regenerated them. They're living the same way they always was. What what you want to avoid, and you know Paul in Romans over and over stresses that it's not of works, it's not of man, that it's of God and it's God's production because when you start to ask people, How do you know you're saved? And what if I ask you, how do you know that you're saved? And if if you're not careful, this is what you hear. I believe you hear this an awful lot. Well, I went to an altar, I got baptized, I've been to church, I've done a good I've been a good person, I've tried to do what God would have me to do. I've I've tried to keep the law and I've tried to to praise Him and I've tried to do these works 
And if, if, if in that is where our hope is, then our hope is misplaced. You're not saved. You're not saved by grace through faith. You're saved by what you're doing. That's not biblical saving. Salvation. Salvation is a work produced of the Lord. So now in Romans 11, I hope that that will answer the question. And if you ever have a question, feel free to ask. We'll do our best to, to bring it to where we can understand it. But I promise what Paul says in Romans does not contradict James. So Romans 11, we got down last time to about verse 16. What he's speaking of is the, the rejection of the Jews. Uh, the Jews, the people that God had elect from the Old Testament that God had provided with this great revelation that He didn't provide to anybody else, the knowledge of the law and the prophets and all of the understanding and the, the priesthood and the sacrifices and the covenants and the promises that God had given to Israel and that Israel, the God's truth, whether man likes it or not, that Israel had a special access to that the rest of the world did not have access to. And yet here we come and, and we've come to the days of Jesus. He's been crucified. He's resurrected. And you look at the people of Israel that had all of this blessing from God and the majorities rejected the Word of God. And that's what Paul's dealing with here. Why, why did they fall? Well, it's just like it was in Elijah's day. That Elijah says, I'm the only one left. They've tore down the altars. They've forsaken the law of God. They're killing the prophets and stoning them. And I'm left alone here. Was any of that a lie? They, they were. They had forsaken the law. They had undermined and tore down the altars. They were in absolute, complete rebellion against God overall. But He was not the only one left because God had reserved. God had kept back 7,000. What did He reserve? What did He keep them back from? From going the way that everyone else in Israel was going. And so he concludes in verse number 7, Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. What God's done is He's intervened just as He did in Elijah's day, and God has saved some of Israel. God through His power has reserved and kept them from going the way that everybody else is going and brought them unto Himself for salvation. And so what you're left with here now, you go back in this day, and the Jew that has had an exalted opinion of their self because of their holiness, because of their selection of God, because of their great temple that they've got in Jerusalem, this grand priesthood and this ceremonial sacrifice set up that they've got, and all of their feasts and sacrifices that God gave to them. They thought they were better than everybody else. They had their selves exalted. If we're not careful, that's the way we think as well. But now the tables have turned. And you go to the New Testament church, and the majority of people there often is Gentiles. There's only a few Jews there. 
and a multitude of Gentiles. And so the nature would be, well, let's just flip the script. They thought they were better than us. But boy, that ain't true anymore. We're better than them now. And so Paul's addressing that because there's, there's nobody better than another. The Jews that were saved, they were saved by the grace of God alone. And the Gentiles that were saved, they were saved by the grace of God alone. Because without the grace of God, everybody will reject it. Man, man is on his way to hell for rejecting the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the truth. But the truth is, if God don't intervene, everybody's going to reject Him. God's intervened and kept a number from falling the way that everybody else is falling. So here in verse 16, and in, in the previous few verses, He's been talking about how that through their fall and their rejection, God has then reached forth to the Gentiles the gospel has went out to the Gentile world and it went to the Gentiles not to shut the door on the Jews but to provoke them to jealousy that they would then seek the gospel. So God's enclosing a salvation now that the gospel goes out to everybody. So in verse 16, For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. So... Going back to the Old Testament law, if we had a, a field of corn, when the first ripe fruit of that corn crop came, we were to pick the first ripe and we take it down to the temple and we offer that unto God. And when we offer that first fruit unto God, God then blesses the remainder of the crop and it's holy and it's ours to enjoy. So with, with that thinking in mind, he says if the first fruit... Now who is the first fruit? You could, you could look back to the Old Testament and try to argue that it is Abraham, but really the, the first fruit that is holy is the Lord Jesus Christ. And because He is the first fruit, and He is the first fruit from the dead, because He is holy all of those that are brought in by Him are holy as well. You see that picture of the Old Testament, because I've offered those first ripe ears of corn to God, the rest of that crop is then blessed of God. And so the Lord Jesus, because He is holy and pure, and He is the perfect sacrifice of God, all of those that come to God by Him, they're holy as well. Not because they've been offered to God. The rest of that corn's not offered to God. I get to pick that and eat that myself. I can feed my family with that. I can sell it and gain from that. It's not offered to God. So the, the rest of the people, they're holy not because they're holy of themselves, but because the first fruit is holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. So the tree that has a holy root, then what comes forth out of that root must also be holy. So the Lord Jesus, being that root and that branch of Jesse and of David, He is holy 
and all of those attached to him are by their association with him made holy. So that the only thing that matters then is whether we're in Christ Jesus or not. And you saw the illustration with the envelope and a book. Well, Paul's going to use a different illustration that the Lord Jesus is a tree and everything that's attached to the tree is holy because it's attached to the tree. So let's look then at the next few verses. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert graft in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest the root, bearest not the root, but the root thee. So in grafting, grafting's an interesting thing. But you know what you do? You take something good and you graft it in to a tree that's not good. For apples, you've got the, the stem, the, the, the tree, the trunk of the crab apple and you're grafting the good, what you want to produce, you graft it in that it might grow with the stump of the tree. God's not doing that here. God's breaking off the natural branches and He's grafting in that that's bad. See, the tree's what's good here. It's the branches that's bad. The Lord Jesus is the good portion here. And it's here He's using the picture of the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were by nature and by raising by germination, by growth, by natural production. They were people that knew the Word of God. They knew the sacrifices. They had the priesthood. And God has broken some of those branches off and He's now grafting wild olive trees in amongst the original or the natural branches. So these wild branches, they are then made holy and made pure and their product is made holy and pure by their attachment to the tree, the Lord Jesus. It is a work, and you know in this picture now, is, it, is there any way that a tree is going to graft itself? There's no way whatsoever that a tree can graft itself. But this is the hand of somebody, wouldn't you agree, that knows what they're doing. They know how to make the right cut. They know how to put it back together and seal it up. They know how to, to do the work. Well, the Lord is doing this work. And He's taking these wild branches, these Gentiles, and these that are sinners, and the God's truth, these that have no place on a farm, producing olives. You know, these wicked, sinful, ungodly Gentiles, you and I really, when we were in sin, we've got no place at the church house. We were wicked and vile and sinful. But God, by His grace, attached us to the tree. There was new sap flowing through us and the production of our lives changed. 
not because we changed ourselves, but because we were grafted in. Boast not against the branches. So don't look at those that's been cut off and boast as if you're something better than they are. Now if, and think with me very closely here, the Jew was broken off because of unbelief. He's going to specifically state that. The Gentiles were grafted in because of belief. So if all of that was of them, then could they not boast? They would be then better than the Jew. Well, they rejected and I didn't. I'm better than they are. But he says here, boast not against the branches. Don't boast over those that are cut off. Don't think that you're better, that you're more intelligent, that you're more spiritual than those that's been cut off. If thou boast, thou bearest not the root. It's not the tree that's first produced and you plant the stump in the ground and the root grows. No, it's the root that produces and gives life to the rest of the tree. We're not the one producing the Lord Jesus, but the Lord Jesus is the one that's producing us. We come and grow from the root. You'll never plant a tree stump and get a living tree. When I was in high school, we were doing a a project for the library. We had this dogwood tree that they wanted planted on the side of the bank. An old boy set it down and there it went down the hill. Rolling. We got down there, grabbed up the root ball, took it back up the hill, and when we unwrapped it, pulled it, the roots was in the ball and the stump was there. And he said, we're just going to plant it just like it is. Now how long do you think the leaves on that dogwood stayed green? In just a day or two, There was no life. It was evident. What happened to that tree? That must have been a bad tree. We knew what happened to the tree. There was no root on it. And it can't live without the root. The tree don't give life to the roots. The roots is giving life to the tree. And so without the root of the Lord Jesus, there's no life. And now he's arguing here now about boasting. You can't boast because the Lord Jesus is bearing you. It's not that I've done something to produce the Lord Jesus in my life or in my heart or in my mind. It's that the Lord Jesus has grafted me into Him and now I'm alive because of Him. If it's God doing the work, then I can't boast that I've done the work because I'm lying, right? So he says... Thou wilt say then. So Paul says don't boast over the Jew. Don't think you're better because they've been broken off and you've been grafted in. Because you're being born of the root. You're not producing life for the root, but the root's giving life unto you. Thou wilt say then the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. So they're going to say, well, wait a minute. God broke them off for me. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. 
So faith then. We've talked about faith many times. What is faith? Where does faith come from? Faith is not in me naturally and I exercise it at the right time and I get saved. If that's the case and everybody has faith, then we're talking about a work that we're doing and something that I can boast in. But this faith here, if we look back in Romans 9, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. In Ephesians 2, you're saved by grace, are you saved? Through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So how are the Gentiles believers? Because God has the definition of the word, persuasion, credence, moral conviction of religious truth. How are the Gentiles saved? By faith. God has, by the Word of God, through the Gospel, and by the Spirit, persuaded and convinced them of the truth and brought them to the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, if I'm in the kingdom of God only because God convinced and convicted and drew me and saved me, then who do I boast in then? God forbid that I boast saving the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's the one that done the work. So should I look down on somebody that does not believe? Can I look down on them and say, you hear this, this is often said, I just can't understand why they don't believe. How And I believe you could word it like this and it'd be the same. How could somebody be so ignorant as to reject Jesus like they do? And boy, we're we're above them. We're, We're not ignorant like they are because we believe. You see how that could be in the mind of the Gentiles? That they could look and say, look at the nation of the Jews. They knew so much more than I knew. They were so much wiser in the things of God than me. But look how stupid that they are. And here I am saved. Boy, I must be leagues ahead of them. If we're not careful, you'll put yourself leagues ahead of other people as well. Be not high-minded, but fear. The only reason you came was God that brought you. The only reason you came was that the grace of God drew you. The only reason you came was that God drew by the power of the Spirit you under the Lord Jesus. So don't boast about where you're at, but fear. And that word fear, to stand in awe of, to reverence. I tell you what you ought to do. Y'all to look at what God done and stand in awe that He brought you out of where you were. It's amazing, ain't it? To wonder, and not wonder as I'm thinking about it, I'm pondering on it, but to stand in awe and wonder at the work of God that He done to bring us to salvation. Don't be high-minded in yourself because if God didn't intervene you would have never been saved. 
If God didn't intervene, you would have never come to God. If God hadn't persuaded, you would have been as the Jews were. This is the work of the Lord. Don't be high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest He also spare not thee. So would you say this is true? If God would cut off sons of Abraham because of unbelief, would God not cut off Gentiles because of unbelief? Just because we're in and around the church, and now hold on, hold on, before, before you twist that up, people don't lose their salvation. They don't. God's not cutting people off that are saved and born again. We're looking at the tree here, and if the unbelief of the Jew was enough for them to be cast away, would the unbelief of the Gentile not also be the same? The same judgment, the same punishment, the same wrath of God, His same anger would be the same for one and the other. Listen to this next verse. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fail severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise, thou also shalt be cut off. So behold this, the goodness, and that means just exactly what you would think, the good, the usefulness, the benefit of God, and the severity, the decisiveness, or the rigor of God. So God to one, I don't, I don't know how you're going to divide this one way or the other. Is God not with one being good and merciful and kind and to the other He is cutting and judging and bringing destruction? Behold, He says, the goodness and severity of God. On them which fail, severity. Could God not deal with severity upon all of mankind? It astounds me that we say that, well, this has got to happen and that's got to happen. And God's got to do this and that and the other for everybody. And then in the next sentence we say that the Lord could come back at any moment. So we've been blessed to have been brought up in and under the preaching of the gospel. There's, there's many people here that's heard thousands of gospel messages. You're telling me God's got to do that for everybody on earth? That God's going to offer that to everybody. There's no way for that to happen. God is good unto some. And he's severe with others. God was good unto Israel. Was He not through the Old Testament? And severity on others. Did the Babylonians, did they receive the same mercy that Israel received? No, so... As we look, we look at the goodness and severity 
of God towards them which fail severity. So in Numbers chapter 14, I've looked at this verse before. Numbers chapter 14, verse number 18. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Now, is that true? Is that verse true? Well, now, God doesn't, God doesn't punish children for the sin of their fathers. We've, we've got that in Ezekiel, wouldn't you say? But according to this verse, He does visit. Would you say that's true? He is visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. You know what you've got? You've got Ahab as an example. God says, I'm going to cut off your house, Ahab. Ahab deserved it. He was wicked. Agreed? I'm going to cut off Ahab and I'm going to cut off Jezebel from being the king. And Ahab was sorry. And God says, I'm not going to bring this in Ahab's day, but in his son's. Is that fair? That's what he did, isn't it? God did do that. He did work that way. And so God, can God not be severe if He desires to be severe? Can God not bring judgment? I mean, could He not come back right now and cut off everybody on the earth in judgment and all of those that are unsaved would stand before God, some having heard the gospel all of their life, and some maybe in North Korea, having never had the liberty to hear the gospel, and would God not be just in every situation and in every case? Now, if God's going to be unjust, we've got a real problem. But God is good to some. Jacob have I loved. And He's severe towards others. Esau have I hated. God is free to do so. And yet, there's no injustice because Esau's going to be a God rejecter. And he's going to receive the payment for the sin that he commits. Jacob's going to be a God rejecter as well. But God's going to be merciful and God's going to forgive through the coming of the Lord Jesus and redeem Jacob from his sin. Behold the goodness and severity. In Psalm 136, I, if you got your book, I want you to turn to Psalm 136. And I want you to read this with me if you would. Psalm 136. Verse 13. To him which divided the Red Sea into parts, for his mercy endureth forever. 
and made Israel to pass through the midst of it, for his mercy endureth forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his mercy endureth forever. So what happens here? Well, to Israel, God's merciful. And He brings them through the Red Sea for their redemption. True? True. Was it because they were better? I tell you what they were doing moments before the sea parted. They were saying, God and Moses has brought us out here to kill us. We should have never left Egypt. Were they not? Did they deserve mercy? Absolutely not. Did you deserve mercy? Absolutely not. But God dealt mercifully with Israel and brought them through the Red Sea. And here's Pharaoh. Did Pharaoh deserve mercy? He did not. But Pharaoh goes into the same Red Sea and you can see the goodness of God on Israel and on Pharaoh and his host. It wasn't just Pharaoh that drowned. It was Pharaoh, and it was his captains, and it was his footmen, and it was his horsemen, and it was his chariots, and it was the entire army of the greatest and strongest and mightiest nation in that day on the face of the earth. The Egyptian army. And every man in that army And every horse that they had was destroyed in the Red Sea. You know what man says? Boy, that's harsh. It is harsh. Behold the goodness and severity of God. So Israel, when they get to the other side, they can't say, boy, God God has parted the waters because of our great spirituality. It's what man would like to think. But he he says it at the end of every verse. In the 136th Psalm, He parted the sea, for His mercy endureth forever. And so behold, look at the goodness of God and the severity on them which fail, severity, but toward thee, goodness. My, what what goodness that God has shown to those that He's redeemed. Why are we saved? The goodness of God. The mercy of God. The kindness of God. The church can glory. Paul says it so beautifully. There's only one thing the church can glory in. And it's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that God has done to bring us to salvation. We're talking about a goodness that's beyond our understanding and beyond our able ability to think, the goodness and the mercy and the compassion of God that substituted Jesus in judgment and in wrath that we, the sinner, could be set free. And God could have justly and rightly... I've heard it said, I've heard it from your mouths, many of you, that God could have cut me off. He could have just not let me come back. He could have let me die there and I'd have been in hell and I'd have been there justly. God could have been severe. He could have done it and been fair and right to do it. 
And God could at any moment come back and cut everybody that's lost off and be fair and right in doing it. But God showed us mercy. You know what that ought to produce out of me? God, thank you for your goodness upon me. Thank God for His goodness and His mercy. If, now there's an if, if thou continue in His goodness, otherwise thou shalt also be cut off. So there is then a continuing. This is, it's not some great mystery. He's already talked about it in Romans that those that are in God's goodness, it's not a forgiveness and a ticket to live in sin, but it is a purchasing. That here's one going to the judgment and God has purchased them by the blood of Jesus Christ. They now belong to Him. He is their master and it's Him that they're obedient to. And if, if the life does not continue in the goodness of God, then God's not bought them. And you know what the end of those that have not been bought is going to be? They're going to be cut off. They're cut off for unbelief. So this regeneration and this work of God is a product of God. Otherwise thou shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. So to those, to the Jew now, in the original writing of this, he says, is God not able to take the Jew that's in unbelief and graft them back? If God can go out in the woods and get a wild, rotten olive tree and put it into the Lord Jesus and make something out of it, can He take the Jew and graft them in as well and make the same thing? God's not limited in His power nor in His ability. See, this is all the work of God's hand. If they abide not still and unbelief, they can be grafted in also. So then, who then is God unable to save? You've got the whole world here, the Jew and the Gentile, and the power of God is able to take any one of them, regenerate them, and graft them into the tree. So the church can't look at any class, any wealth of people, any uh, uh, education level of people, any riches level of people, and cast them out because of what they are, because God is able to graft all of them in. Does He not have that ability? He can. And so we are better than nobody else. We're grafted in because God grafted us in. He's able to take any old tree limb and graft it in and and make children of God out of them. So we can't boast in one thing nor be proud of ourselves in any way. God's done this. God's able to do it. God's able to graft in them that you look down your nose at. God's able to graft in them that you think are ignorant. God's able to graft in them 
that knows a quarter of what you know, God's able to work and do according to His will and according to His glory. And He's left us nothing to glory in ourselves in. So listen, if thou continue in His goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off, and they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So what's the conclusion? Those that come to God in faith through Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God, they can be saved. They will be saved no matter what they are. And all those that abide in unbelief and are unregenerate, they will be cut off. Jew or Gentile, bond or free, rich or poor, male or female, widow and uh, widower, orphan and those with parents, none of that makes any difference in the kingdom of God. We're either in Jesus Christ or we're not. And those that are not are going to be judged according to the Word of God. All hearts